everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ACES cast. My name is Kurnasib Gatulina, and in this podcast, I talk to researchers affiliated with the Amsterdam Center for European Studies about their ongoing projects, academic journey, and favorite books. My guest today is Guido Snell. Hello, Guido. Hi, Gulnas. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Guido Snell is a lecturer and senior researcher of European studies at the University of Amsterdam. His academic work in the field of arts and literature focuses on trauma and loss in the aftermath of Bosnian war, as well as on the rethinking of terms the East and the West in the European context. Guido Snell is also a writer and a prolific literary translator from Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian into Dutch. Guido, you have a long history of affiliation with the University of Amsterdam. As a student, you attended classes offered by the Department of Slavic Studies that back then was guided by the logic of the Cold War. How did this ideological orientation of your alma mater influence your perception and understanding of the region you're working on now? Well, that's a very good question, uh, Gulnas. Um, I think uh, studying Slavic languages in the uh, first half of the 1990s affected my later uh, choices as a researcher in, in two ways. Uh, one is positive because uh, the Amsterdam Slavic department uh, had a very strong structuralist tradition. So we were very well versed in uh, Russian formalism and all the kind of literary theory uh, that came out of that. Uh, and also, which was quite telling for those times, there still was the, uh, the firm connection between uh, linguistics and literary studies, which has been cut in the meantime. So whenever I am, I am working on literary texts, I can, I can rely on that sort of substratum of, of skills, of, of analytic skills when dealing with texts. The other uh, effect, which is not necessarily negative, but which gave me uh, a lot of food for thought uh, later on, is that the Cold War basically determined that all eyes were looking westward, so to speak. So the whole notion that when you study cultures and literatures of, of the Western Balkans, as I do in my case, that these cultures and these lands are not just or have not just been looking westwards towards cultural centers such as Vienna and Berlin and Paris, uh, but definitely also had very close ties to the southeast, that is to the, uh, the, the, the late Ottoman Empire and whatever came afterwards. And that really was a blind spot in my studies and uh, something that I, together with many other colleagues in my field, of course, that we have been trying to correct ever since. But indeed, um, the Cold War ended and a lot of things has changed, as we know. But at the same time, if we still go a little bit back into the history and look at the 90s, this decade didn't bring much, much peace into the region that you're studying and in general for many European uh, former communist states. And in your work, you have extensively studied in particular the traumatic experience of the Bosnian War from 92 to 95. Among your ongoing projects is the creation of a permanent database with private photographs of Dutch pet soldiers in the UN safe area Srebrenica. Could you tell us a little bit more about this ongoing project and your scholarly interest in the history of the Bosnian War? Yeah, of course. This Indeed, this goes back uh, a very long time. When I was an undergraduate student in the Slavic department, next to my studies in comparative literature, the uh, my hunch was always, this is how I came to explain to myself afterwards, uh, uh, the, the odd ways in which I got entangled in, uh, in the politics of the region. The, the explanation that I had was that the one of the full professors of the Slavic department in those days uh, simply uh, had very intimate ties to the Dutch Secret Service, which really was a leftover of the Cold War. You were either uh, a commie, 
um, or you were simply leftist. And otherwise, um, you would always have to somehow take a stance towards the, uh, in our case, uh, the Dutch uh, formal political stance in the Cold War. And of course, everyone who had linguistic skills, whether it was Czech or, or Polish or you know any of the of the languages from from behind the so-called Iron Curtain, uh, was at some stage approached in his or her career. And in the 80s, this mostly had to do with uh, still uh, East-West communist, uh, uh, free West capitalist distinction. But in the 90s, this became a bit fuzzy. Um, I remember other colleagues uh, who uh, uh, who were skilled in in the Serbo-Croatian language, for instance, approached by the uh, the Amsterdam police to uh, to work as interpreters because the uh, you know the Serbian Montenegrin uh, mafia was booming and so on, which you know makes for another line of profession. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I was approached, and, and and it's a bit of a, a long run to the beginning of the actual commitment to the whole affair. I was approached uh, in '94 to go, uh, and still being an undergraduate student, to serve in the Dutch army as an interpreter. Uh, the Dutch army was lacking uh, its own interpreters, had to rely on what they called local interpreters, which they didn't trust, I think, for no reason. But anyway, that was their perception. Uh, and for one month, I was uh, enrolled in the Dutch army as an, uh, a non-commissioned uh, officer. Decided at some point that it might not be the right line of profession for me. Um, this had to do with the army culture, but especially with the sort of the cultural representation of the people that I would have to deal with in uh, the, uh, the Srebrenica enclave, which was going to be my destination. Uh, these were stereotyped, these were uh, misogynist and racist stereotypes. So I withdrew. And then ever since my commitment to the people there and the region and the culture and the language in a sense deepened. Of course, the genocide happened in Srebrenica and many years later, um, that is about seven years afterwards, I translated, for instance, a memoir by one of the most well-known survivors of the, uh, um, uh, the genocide, Emir Sulyagic, who served as an interpreter for the uh, UNHCR uh, and who wrote a very uh, moving memoir of uh, uh, life under the siege and the uh, genocide that have happened afterwards. I have been writing about it in my research, uh, mostly through literary sources, but sometimes also through cinema or documentary film. Until I was approached by a colleague of mine, Erna Reisdijk, who is a lecturer in the Dutch Military Defense Academy, training young officers. And she's a political scientist by training, did her PhD on the, the geopolitics of Srebrenica. Uh, so let's say another colleague whose career has been deeply um, uh, committed to, um, to these events, these historical events. And she had been approached on one of her visits to the Srebrenica Memorial Center in uh, very close to Srebrenica itself by one of the tour guides who had come across a uh, photograph, a private photograph taken by a Dutch soldier uh, on which he recognized his own brother. He himself was nine years old back then. Uh, his brother was a couple of years older and did not survive the war. So he realized that this was the only remaining image that he had of his brother. And Azir Osmanovic, this is uh, uh, what the name of the tour guide is, asked my colleague Erna whether she knew of any more of such photographs, because he could, of course, easily imagine the, uh, the enormous, first of all, emotional value to uh, survivors. Erna invited me on board of this project, and together we started to search for photos, started to approach Dutchbed veterans, so Dutch soldiers who are now either retired or are having a civil existence, 
uh, and we have started to collect these photos. And uh, we, we estimate that there must be about 10,000 uh, photos, uh, you know, hidden in photo albums, hidden in attics, sometimes already circulating on the internet, on Facebook, for instance. And it is our aim to build a, uh, a digital database that, first of all, survivors can use to, uh, to track down images, images of those that, you know, most in most times, unfortunately, of people they lost, people that were killed. Uh, and secondly, to open up this database to future research because we really think that uh, much of the emphasis so far has been on, um, for instance, the political decision-making, of course, the whole uh, legal aspect of the Srebrenica genocide. But we think that there is very important material in these photos because they can give you a much more nuanced picture of, uh, for instance, life under the siege, and perhaps also can help to explain uh, the political polarization that took place in between Dutch Bet and the local inhabitants. And this is basically what the project is about. It's going to run until 2025, when it will be the uh, 30th commemoration of the genocide. And then we'll hope to have the, uh, the database available. Wow, it is indeed a very enormous project, but at the same time, it has a lot of potential to, indeed, to offer new understandings to this past and also help those survivors to sort of reconnect with the events that happened in the region. But when we were talking before about this project, you also told me the title of it, and um, it sounds uh, Facing Srebrenica and the Future of European Memory. Right. Um, I came back to this title, and yeah, it does suggest a rethinking of this shared European history. Yeah. And I'm interested in how do you envision this future memory? Well, maybe this is also uh, an indirect answer to your first question. The, the European dimension um, it is very important to us. If you approach, and I think I'm also touching here upon something called methodological nationalism. If you approach mass violence as it took place in Eastern Bosnia, I mean also in other pockets, but we are focusing on this particular uh, set of events. The temptation, of course, is to take the nationalities of those involved and also the ethnicities uh, also as, de as, as determinants of the parameters of your research questions. But we think, so, you know, and that would lead to uh, the kind of research that has been done um, already by historians, political scholars, that looks either in uh, the sort of the local history of Bosnia, uh, you know, often sort of reifying ideas about the sort of the perpetual violence that, that supposedly is part of the history of the region, which I think it is not not more or less than elsewhere in Europe. And on the other side, of course, uh, the Dutch, uh, Dutch Bet, the, the, the Dutch battalion, uh, with all its good intentions of the 1990s, you know, sort of the international legal world order and so on and so forth. But what you uh, lose sight of then is the fact that in several ways, this was a European war, a war that even when the warring factions, you know, were uh, very local in a sense, that the whole dynamic of that conflict uh, was uh, uh, European to the core. For instance, in the sense that a paradox that has always been, you know, deeply puzzling to me, how can you explain that uh, no more than 140, 50 kilometers to the north of Srebrenica, uh, the EU is about to enlarge its territory, and that close sort of this realm of inevitable progress 
uh, integration, democratization, um, you know, leaving behind the legacy of communism, you would suddenly have this sort of out of our historical phenomenon. That's something that I refuse to buy. And I think this war is also European in another sense. Uh, think, for instance, of the large and significant Bosnian diaspora in the Netherlands. One way to go about is to say diasporic memory, in this case of trauma, is something that splits uh, a national public sphere. And it really then sort of, you know, puts the whole Bosnian question in the Netherlands aside uh, in the margins as a footnote. But as a colleague uh, from the NIOT pointed out recently in a discussion that we were having about this project, uh, he said, you know, the Bosnian diaspora is among many diasporas in the Netherlands. And in a sense, for instance, not unlike uh, several of the post-colonial uh, uh, diasporas, such as, you know, the various diasporas from Indonesia, who also have a legacy of violence and, you know, decolonization was certainly a different ball game than, than the dissolution of Yugoslavia. But there are many similarities. And you simply, as a cultural historian or a cultural analyst, gain a much better and more profound understanding if you think of this, uh, this war, but especially of, of the memorial culture and, and the blind spots in the memory as a European phenomenon. I would like to go a little bit in the deeper and just go beyond this, this particular case of the Bosnian war. But... Um touch a little bit about your other areas of expertise and namely about thinking about the East and the West in European context. And you know, currently, if you listen to the mainstream discourses, it's almost impossible not to use these terms, the Eastern Europe, the Western Europe, because these parts of the continent seem to differ substantially in economic terms, political landscapes, and in the very understanding of the European project, the European Union. Um, but in your work, you have been looking for ways that could offer an alternative for understanding uh, the shared future and, you know, just going beyond this, the East and the West dichotomy. So what would you suggest as an, you know, a different framework, more productive framework for looking at this history and also the future? Uh, that's such a difficult question, uh, Gulnas, but it's also <laughs> a fair question because I think it's one of the tasks that we have as scholars. We also have to be imaginative, not just deconstructivists, but also we have to... Uh, to, we have to think of alternative scenarios. And I think one of the possible scenarios, and, and this always works if you sort of look, you know, from a grassroots perspective from the region. So one way, and, and, and I published about it last year, the former Yugoslavia, the Western Balkans and the Balkans at large, they, of course, they have a tradition of outspoken and perhaps even a very fierce political nationalism. This is a reality and it, you know, it would be useless to deny that. But it's also possible to outline different histories emerging from that region. And these would be histories of multilingualism, for instance, or histories of uh, religious coexistence. It is really interesting to me and sort of an ongoing question why many of my colleagues, especially still in the 90s and the early 2000s, whenever they were trying to make sense of the war in Yugoslavia, in many cases resorted to these models that simply confirmed uh, uh, the nationalist traditions and uh, the, the sort of the parochial conflicts. Whereas it is also possible to, to outline um, uh, histories of collaboration, of mutual understanding. And I'm not at all sort of uh, embellishing uh, or even inventing a past. These are realities. 
there are realities of you know families of of urban cultures in cities such as Sarajevo and even in Belgrade uh, that is up until the the mid 19th century where such coexistence was a reality and this of course is also and this is the other side of my interest uh, and this is something that we are working a lot on in in the diverse Europe platform in Aces Western Europe of course uh, has similar traditions you know i was just speaking about the bosnian diaspora you know being embedded in a way or trying to find its own place within the whole post colonial uh, constellation of of the low countries and in that sense it is also possible to write the history of you know western europe as a a non national history and i find that very important but let's talk another uh, about another major and important area of expertise because i cannot leave this chance and not to talk about your work as a translator and as a writer because indeed you've been very active in the field of translation and i'm curious what are your personal interests for translating the work by bosnian croatian and serbian authors into dutch first of all it was uh, something that i could not avoid and that sounds rather uh, dismissive and negative but you have to imagine that there was a huge demand in the 1990s people in western europe had no clue about the cultures of the former yugoslavia the only sort of intimate connections that there were were marxist there wasn't a sort of a widespread tradition of literary translation like for instance you know a dutch reading audience can have if it wants to a very intimate knowledge of of german culture for instance and this was almost impossible for the former yugoslavia so there was a huge demand for literary translation and together with two or three other colleagues we simply felt that you know uh, uh, from modernist classics all the way to contemporary writers needed to be translated and then as you know as these things go when the war was over and uh, a couple of years passed by this interest um decreased and you know suddenly you would find reading audiences eager to find out about afghanistan literature for instance this is the the uh, this is how how you know the sort of the um the 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 curious dynamic of uh, of the global literary world and the european literary world so i also started to translate less i you know it was also a matter of of professional survival but still nowadays i do still train uh, young translators uh, coach them basically and uh, find it very important that what we started in in the 1990s that this will be continued uh, because i think europe is a continent of translation and you only know your neighbors if you can read them this is my uh, my motto and um, so and this is this is labor this is you know this has to be done it's hard labor it's also magnificent labor uh, and someone needs to do it Indeed, you told that uh, you were supervising also translators who are now continuing the work that you did before. So what are the pitfalls that an aspiring translator uh, should be aware of when translating prose by authors from former Yugoslavia into, let's say, Dutch, or the same goes for English and German? Mm. The same pitfalls as any literary translator from any ling- language is facing. The, um, uh, the, great, the greatest challenge, I think, is to establish your own position as a translator meaning that you are uh, able to negotiate the writers that you want to have translated and of course this is you know this is a so-called free market um, apart from a few exceptions publishers will always choose those titles that are already 
uh, of some interest and, and preferably best-selling either in Germany, France, or the UK. And, you know, in that sense, the Netherlands is a, is a minor country, but there is a politics to being a literary translator. And this is something that I keep on repeating to, to the, the people that I, that I coach. You have a responsibility towards the, the choice of texts that, that makes it into Dutch. And in that sense, translators are also ambassadors. And, you know, the, the, um, the word in, in Turkish for uh, translator, ambassador, diplomat is in Dragoman. Uh, which made it into, you know, Hungarian uh, and German and other European languages as well. And I find this a beautiful metaphor for the literary translator. In this context, I also am asking our final and reoccurring question, the one about books. What book would you suggest reading for someone who is curious to discover the world of Bosnian or Croatian literature? I uh, gave it a lot of thought, this question. There are bookshelves in my house uh, full of uh, titles that uh, each individually could uh, qualify for this. Uh, in the end, I chose a book by a very dear friend of mine. His name is uh, Semesdin Mehmedinovic. He is a writer who was born in 1960 in central Bosnia. When the war broke out, and I think in a sense it's inevitable that I chose a book that deals with the war of the 1990s, uh, because it also shaped my perception uh, of the region. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say, but you know, this is this was my reality, also the reality of my generation. And Semesdin, when the war broke out, was a resident of Sarajevo, and stayed in the city under the siege, all the way until the end. Then left with his family to the United States, spent there a couple of decades uh, working as a journalist, and two years ago returned to the city. But while in Sarajevo during the siege, he published uh, short stories and poems, which were collected in a book called Sarajevo Blues. And uh, to my, in, in my estimation, this is still the, the, um, uh, the most valuable book about the war, from the war and about the war. And why? First of all, because it is beautifully written, but much more importantly, it is not just a literary book. I think it is also a book of, of critical thought because it manages to combine sort of, you know, this very sharp, unrelenting critical analysis of your own situation. Also as a writer, what does it mean to continue writing when the violence does not stop? You know, this is, for instance, a question that journalists ask themselves, but still they keep on doing their profession. But for a writer, this is a different matter. Why would you keep on recording the violence and uh, the dying around you if it's not changing anything? And for this reason, this little booklet, it's only 110 or 20 pages, really is a manifesto, you know, signaling the end perhaps of postmodernism. So reality re of literature returning to reality, but also opening up new ways of writing, new, new ways of dealing with facts, new ways of dealing with what we today call uh, fake news, for instance. And in that sense, I think it is, it is a very important book. Thank you so much, Guido, for your suggestions and for this discussion. Good luck with your projects. Thanks, uh, Gulnas, for the interview. Join us for the next episode with Sudha Rajagopalan as we talk about Indian cinema in the Soviet Union, new media, and the need for reconsidering the Cold War memories. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm.